Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like expanding capacity for sustainable aviation fuel and biodiesel in Washington state and bringing massive new infrastructure online in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Kara Swisher, and you're listening to Sway. Big tech is undergoing a huge cultural shift right now. Workers at Google are unionizing. Leaders at companies like Coinbase and Basecamp have clamped down on political and social discussions at the workplace. And reports are out that Bill Gates, the biggest nerd in tech, pursued affairs with female employees. But the cracks in the culture have been there for decades. I saw them, and so did my guest today, Ellen Powell. She was one of tech's earliest whistleblowers. Nearly a decade ago, she sued the prominent venture capital firm Kleiner Perkins for gender discrimination. She'd worked there for seven years, sourced successful deals, and was still passed over for senior partner. It was the trial heard round Silicon Valley. Though Pow didn't win, the case brought attention to the white male-dominated industry and just how much the firm and the Valley operated as an exclusive boys' club. The experience also refocused Pow's career. In 2014, she became CEO of Reddit for a brief period during which she banned revenge porn on the platform. Now she's an angel investor and CEO of Project Include, a nonprofit she co-founded to improve diversity and inclusion in the industry. Good luck with that. In any case, they wanted Pow's take on where Silicon Valley is today and how far the culture has come, or rather, has not. So you're an early voice in talking about work culture in Silicon Valley because of of the many things your trial was, it was about culture at work and how it operates and how power operates. So I want to get your thoughts first on Bill Gates. The Microsoft founder has come under scrutiny in the midst of his divorce. It's been reported that his wife or soon-to-be ex-wife Melinda was uncomfortable with his relationship with convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein, though Bill's spokesperson has said that the meetings were only about philanthropy. It's also been reported that he made advances on female employees at Microsoft and the Gates Foundation. He resigned from his Microsoft board seat. Of course, his spokesperson disputes that the resignation has had anything to do with these allegations. What do you think his actions say about power and culture in tech? I think it's impressive that nobody has said anything until now, right? Like, he got kicked out a year ago. I mean, who's going to out the richest man in the world? Like, for a long time, he's been the richest man in the world, and then he reformed his kind of monopolistic ways by starting this Gates Foundation with Melinda. And that really made it hard for people to attack him. Mm-hmm. He came to Kleiner at a CEO conference and we we're talking about his relationship with his wife. And he said, well, you know, I met her back when it was okay to date people at the office. So he knew better. He knew it wasn't okay. Right. He knew it wasn't allowed, but he did it anyway. Yeah. What's interesting is that I think a lot of his feelings was that. That's actually stuck in his mind. Well, I met my wife at work and that worked out fine. I mean, it didn't right now, obviously. So he thought of work as that kind of not just workplace, but also a social place or a place for dating, a dating pool, essentially. Yeah. And she seemed like she was fine with it. So in his mind, other people are probably fine with it, too. How do you look at how the board acted? Because on one hand, they actually acted, which doesn't usually happen at all. Um, On the other hand, it was kind of quietly shuttled off, you know, with dignity, essentially. 
yeah, I mean, they they hit it. It's hard to report these things. And mm-hmm. so you know, whoever reported on him really stepped up. And I think they were probably worried that she would go and talk to the press, right? I think, um, you know, I wish they had outed him, right? I mean, how do you get change? You have to hold people accountable and you have to let people know that the rules apply to everyone. And that would have been a huge statement from Microsoft. Yeah, he stepped down from the board in 2020. I mean, he got to step down and it was like, thank you for all your service. It made little sense because he was busy doing other things, including working on climate change. How would you have seen it done where that it would be better? Just say, this is what happened here. And we got this letter and explained everything and been forthright about it. Yeah, I thought that original, do you remember several years ago, Julianne Horvath? Horvath is an engineer who revealed sexism at GitHub, just for people who don't know the history of it. Yeah, you know, they had a very thoughtful letter about it. I mean, it all fell apart later because it was clear it was kind of a PR thing, but mm-hmm. I thought that it was handled well. To Microsoft's credit, but it sounds like they, they let them stay working there and they didn't uh, say anything negative about them. Or didn't go after them as you got gone after, yeah. essentially. But when you saw this, did you see like, oh, it's still, this is 10 years later. This just continues to be an issue that doesn't ever, even post Me Too, which sort of shook up everybody in Silicon Valley and everywhere across the country. How do you assess that? Well, I think that he wouldn't have been pushed out if it hadn't been for Me Too, right? You know, we've heard of so many CEOs who have done so many terrible things who are still um, out there, so many VCs, and they're all coming back. It's the fact that you know, people are realizing like this is actually wrong, but it is so slow and it is so reluctant, right? You look at this and it's not leadership in any sense of the word. It's like they let him resign and they gave him a nice send off and they gave him a good story around it. Would you see them doing something now and talking about it more proactively? I can't see that coming out of Microsoft. If they put all this effort to package it like this, why would they unpackage it? It would be a smart and it would be a thoughtful thing to do. It would be good for the culture of the company to say, you know what, we made a mistake. We hid this information, but we should have done this. And this is what we should have said. And this is what we're going to do in the future. But now he doesn't have the power he did at Microsoft. He's not the CEO. He's not on the board. Why not do that? It might be something... But isn't that all relationship-driven? Like, he put all those people on the board. He made them all a bunch of money. And he still got tons of money to help people do things, so... So it's just give him a break, that kind of thing. This idea of just let's let him go. It's like, I owe him. I owe him and I'm not going to take him down because, you know, he helped me out. So this is the this idea of this boys club that we have talked about a lot has protected this kind of behavior. Big tech has long been a particular boys club. Why do you think that is? I think it started that way and it stayed that way for so long. And like, there's a set of people who don't know anything else. And they're probably like, so what? He asked people out. He, you know, said that they didn't have to go out with him. Like he did it the right way. I, they, they just don't see anything as being wrong because that's all they know. And that's all they talk to. And they are in their little bubble and there's no other voice in that bubble to share a different experience or to share a different perspective. Yeah, the whole thing is weird. Right. So you were one of the first whistleblowers when it came to discriminatory work culture in the Valley. In 2012, you filed suit against Clamor Perkins, one of the Silicon Valley's most well-known venture capital firms. It was not a sexual harassment suit. It was a gender discrimination and retaliation suit. You'd been there for seven years. You were an investing partner at the time. Ten years later, I mean, I just, I can't believe it's 10 years. How do you look at it now, thinking about the experience and why you sued? Well, a big part of it was I knew I was right. So there were it's just a round of promotions at Kleiner where almost all the men got promoted. None of the women got promoted. So there were, it was clear to me that it was not a me thing. It was a firm-wide problem and it was 
just really blatant because the woman, you know, the, it was just on every metric that Kleiner cared about, mm-hmm. the women were doing better. And I had actually heard from another woman at Kleiner that she had talked to other women at other VC firms and it was kind of, these problems were rampant. And if Kleiner can get away with it, everybody follows them. At that time, you know, they were one of the top two or three VC firms. Mm-hmm. So the whole thing just seemed really unfair. And I thought, you know, I'm in a position where I have money. It's okay for me to take a risk. So it, I just thought, if it's not me, then who's going to do it? And I talked to some people who had sued investment banks. They didn't regret it. They recommended against it. And I can see why. And I do the same now. I didn't understand it at the time, but it is so hard. Mm-hmm. It is so unpleasant. People didn't want to hire me. People didn't want to talk to me. A lot of the press was really negative. I was the first person to call out venture capital for gender discrimination and people didn't believe me. Like you're taking an industry on and that is an industry that has a lot of power, it has a lot of wealth and it has a lot of influence. And then also, you know, your friends, um, you know, some of them turn out not to be friends. Yeah, but ultimately the jury ruled in the favor of Kleiner Perkins, not you. In fact, you were ordered to pay $276,000 to offset their legal fees. Kleiner dropped that when you decided to drop your appeal. And you also came uh, under a lot of scrutiny for challenging one of the most powerful VCs. When you look at that, was it worth it? You're talking about, well, someone had to do it. But when you look at it a decade hence, was it worth it to you, do you think? There's a part of me where I feel like, well, it was inevitable. At some point, somebody would have had to say something. But no, but Kleiner had been around since 1972 and nobody had said anything. So it was just such an insular boys club and you could feel it and you could see it and it was never going to change if somebody didn't speak up. So I I think things have changed a little bit. There was a professor who actually testified against me from Harvard Business School and he just released a research report that showed that the I think it's the number of women partners in VC firms went up by 50% since the trial. And he attributed that increase to the trial. And also, I think a big part of it is like so many people had similar experiences mm-hmm. and people started talking about them. And that made a huge difference in just people's mental health, I think. Yeah, it was interesting. I n- I'll never forget, I was with a pretty high-ranking executive sitting backstage at an event and uh, she was reading our coverage because we had a lot of it. And she kept saying as she was reading some of the testimony, like, that's me. And like, what was fascinating about the reaction we got from the, all of our coverage was that all the women understood it. All the men who were didn't hadn't done anything, hadn't paid attention, were sort of surprised. You know, I think the ones who behaved badly understood what was happening. But the ones who were sort of like, what? Did that happen? Or it just was a series of those kind of little mini revelations from for relatively ignorant men and women who knew exactly what they were talking about. So I think that was to me the most interesting part of watching the entire thing roll out. It was also, it was interesting to see like the journalists change. I think the woman did understand it. A lot of, a couple of women journalists told me like they had had similar experiences and you could see the men were skeptical, but over like the course of the three week trial, I think, you know, partly was talking to the women who were reporting on it and it was partly like hearing the feedback from um, their coverage. Like they, they learned a lot. How do you see how much race was playing as the way Kleiner Perkins was trying to portray you? I was struck by it at the time. I remember all the words used for you were all sort of tropes on Asian people. And they kept uh, citing a performance review that said, you play it close to your vest. Um, I remember a PR person saying you were crafty to me. And I was like, what? Like, um, do you think that played a role in that or not? At the time, like there there were clear things. Like I put together a set of slides as a joke one holiday 
party because like people couldn't tell the Asian employees apart. So I did a whole like Asian people 101 at Kleiner Perkins, Ellen wears glasses, Aileen does not. That's how you tell them apart. Like, and (laughs) just like people could not tell us apart. Right. And they called us the wrong names. You know, there was a desire for one of the partners to hire a tiger mom. So they wanted an Asian woman who was going to be really committed to work, like not going to complain and they're willing to do the grunt work. Mm -hmm. So there was an element of that and it was gendered too because the Asian men didn't have as many problems around that. Yeah. So you mentioned that the percentage of female VCs did go up after your trial, but you nothing has really changed in terms of female founders. Between 2015 and 2019, the number of female founders who got VC funding only increased by around 2%, which seems due to the increased number of female VCs. How do you think about that? I think we have a system that is racist and sexist, and it's not that easy to change. And you can throw some people into it, but unless you actually change the structure, it's not going to change. So, you know, I wish LPs were more demanding. I wish they said, like, hey, I want to see your numbers. I want to see your diversity metrics, and I want to see real diversity metrics. Like, don't tell me how many companies had a founder who's a woman or a founder who's black. What percentage of your founders? What percentage of your CEOs? What percentage of equity is going to them? What number of dollars? Like, let's look at, is this really part of what you're doing or not? But LPs, I think, you know, for a lot of them, they're just happy to get into these funds and they mm-hmm. don't care. So, and the thinking hasn't changed in demanding that. You know, there's been noise around the edges of it, but not actual numbers don't change whatsoever. Have you felt they have? Is there some promising element of structural change from your perspective? I was so excited to see Harlem Capital raise like $150 million in a relatively reasonable amount of time. It's founded by Black investors, and it's probably the biggest fund with Black-only partners. So that's encouraging. Like five, 10 years ago, you'd be able to raise like five or 10, maybe $15 million. But yeah, but I still see like a lot of funds, you look at their team pages, they throw some people in who are, you know, junior, they throw some people in who are admins, they throw some people in from functional roles, And if you take all those people out, it's very white, it's very male. I think the numbers are still that, is it 72% of firms are still um, all white and like 70% are still all male. Mm -hmm. So your case also was echoed in one of the most recent discrimination cases in Silicon Valley, a lawsuit against Pinterest. The former CEO, uh, Francois Brower, alleging the culture of secrecy among male executives where she was excluded from decision-making meetings. Francoise is a very well-known Google executive before that, too. She also said she was fired for speaking out about a hostile work environment. Pinterest CEO Ben Silberman eventually settled the suit for $22.5 million. What does the price tag say to you about the scrutiny over sexism and discrimination now versus 2015 when your own trial took place? I think people don't understand the numbers. Those are big numbers, but you think about how much equity she had and how much that equity is worth today you know, the options that she gave up. And I think they they renegotiated her salary after she started, if I have the facts right. So it seems really low. Like the dollars in these industries are outrageous. You know, if everybody else is getting it, we should get our share too. Mm-hmm. This When you're saying she had options, as an executive, you get large options. She had the highest ranking position, I think, under Ben, allegedly, and apparently not. Um, but it is it is a different number that she got so much when, when you didn't even get a ruling in your favor. So was it just PR trying to stave off more cases? I think it's that, but also I think the attitudes have changed. Mm-hmm. Where when I sued, people didn't believe in, you know, tech was a meritocracy, you know, supposedly, and people didn't believe that women were mistreated. There was a 
article in the New York Times saying, well, how come I've never heard of this? If this is how people are treated, like we would have known about it earlier. There, there was more skepticism then. And I think now more people have spoken up, more people have shared their experiences. It's more known that tech is actually a pretty sexist industry and people believed her. Right. Right, 100%. The company also was accused by two Black former employees of racist comments, underpayment, and retaliation. They didn't receive millions, by the way. But it seemed to put the pressure on Pinterest, along with uh, Brower's settlement. Uh, ben Silberman announced new targets for hiring women and people of color. Do you see this as a signal that tech companies are actually having to reckon with workplace cultural complaints that they could sort of brush aside before? I see it as this ongoing, like, kowtowing to public pressure, right? So it's not that their attitudes have changed. And I don't know if it's because they're public companies so they want to have good relationship with the markets and they want to have a good reputation or if it's just thin-skinnedness and this desire to, you know... I want it to stop. Yeah, yeah. My mom was asking me the other day, like, what's going on here? And I, I, I don't have a good answer for her, so let's just make it stop. That was actually, you know, one of the reasons why we got rid of unauthorized nude photos from Reddit because families and friends were asking employees, like, how can you allow these stolen nude photos on Reddit? And they were having a hard time answering. And that changed the whole attitude towards this whole free speech, like free for all. Employees at Google formed a union earlier this year. We've seen workers at companies like Google, Microsoft, Amazon speak up and pressure the CEOs to drop bids for defense projects. Um, There seems, though, to be a a desire of CEOs to clamp down on the growing power and base camp as a prominent example. It's been seen as the company work culture in tech. But recently, the company announced it would ban social and political discussions at work, calling them, quote, a major distraction. It also said it would disband the Diversity Council and stop 360 reviews. How how do you look at all this? Because these were were the kind of things you talked about, like, we're going to put these things in place in order to create diversity and inclusion. So I think of them as being very different. I think one, like the workers unionizing, like it's going to happen. Whether they like it or not, like this new generation of worker is not going to sit around and let them, you know, they're not going to go and work for them if they don't feel like it's a fair environment. They're not going to sit for it. So I think they're going to have to deal with it and they can put it off as long as they want to. But they're going to have to face the fact that, you know, they've taken all the money off the top and they've treated people really shoddily. And that's how they became you know, sent to billionaires, right? For Basecamp, I feel a little bit like the guy tried and gave up too soon, Mm -hmm. right? Like he just got frustrated and like he didn't know what to do. And instead of like stepping back and getting some help, he just kind of threw a torch on it and tried to make it all go away. And the guys you were talking about, there's two of them actually, Jason Fried and David Hanemeyer Hansen. I'm not sure which one. They sort of interchangeable sometimes. Um, but the changes in Basecamp initially were spurred in part by a list of customer names that some employees kept and thought were funny, um, but eventually made others uncomfortable because of the inclusion of Asian or African names. This led to an internal discussion about Basecamp's record on diversity and how it should approach those issues. Uh, some employees have said it felt like the founders are worried about this level of input, but they but they did this. They had a reaction. To me, they they've given people all these voices, and it's it's, it's actually throughout Silicon Valley, you give people all these voices. You do nothing about diversity. And then you're like, you know what? You actually can't talk anymore. After giving them tool after tool of meme generators or, hey, come meet the CEO and insult them about the food or whatever. They give them enormous amounts of speaking. And then like, oh, your speech, I don't like so much anymore. Like, that's what it felt like, that they shifted attitudes. Like once it got harder. 
right? Meme, who cares? Meme is dumb. That's fine. Everybody thinks it's kind of funny. But all of a sudden, you're starting to talk about harder issues, and there isn't an easy solution. And we've moved into a place where there is a lot of conflict. Like, the way of interacting now is very um, negative, and it's not about getting to common ground. So, mm-hmm. you know, you now you have all these people who are trying to do that in the workplace, and it's not that manageable unless you build a culture where you have boundaries. When we get to hard topics, you know, there are ways that we talk about them, right? There are ways that we resolve conflicts, and people haven't figured that out. And I think, you know, they came to a place where they said that their values were inclusion, and people said, hey, this behavior is not inclusive, and they didn't know what to do about it. And and what what happened was 20 of its 57 employees said they planned to resign, which is around a third of the company. It was a very small company, but it played out really publicly. Why do you think this power tug war between employees and management says about the moment we're in? And why did such a small company attract so much attention, do you think? What does it represent? Well, I think Jason and David are very public about, as you said, you know, their management styles, they're on Twitter, they have large followings, they're fairly influential. And to, you know, have this happen to them of all people, I think there's some people who said, like, good, right? Like, it's a, it's a, model that they want to follow. And it's great to see two people who have been perceived as inclusive and great leaders decide to just shut it all down. I think that goes back to that, you know, group of people who are in that boys club and here's somebody who's publicly saying what they believe and what they've all been patting each other on the back for, but haven't been able to do it. And I think, you know, there was a lot of, you know, there was some positive response that was public to um, the earlier iteration of this at Coinbase, where Brian Armstrong, mm-hmm. the Coinbase CEO, said, "Okay, we're not we're not going to talk about politics anymore." And I think he was the first. They had five percent other people leave, but I mean, they were sitting on money. Coinbase, was. yeah, Coinbase. Yeah. So you know, the Basecamp founders misjudged, misread that situation, right? Like some of these people have been there like 10, 15 years and hadn't seen an exit, so. But do you think it, one of the things I was struck by is how many CEOs kind of liked watching it, them saying it? Because a lot of them are like, well, I don't want to listen to them. Like, that's what I, you know, ah, thank God they talk. What do you think is at the heart of that idea is that they want to just clamp down on noisy employees? I think it's what they're being noisy about, (laughs) right? If you're a noisy employee talking about Bitcoin, nobody cares. You're talking about going to Mars, nobody cares. But when you start talking about these issues related to race, to gender, to identity, it's an area where the CEO, as a white man, usually isn't an expert on. And they like being the expert. They like knowing more. They like having like the founder stories that nobody was around for. They like being respected and idolized. And when you are not good at that one topic, and it's a social minefield, and it's a minefield, and you, you know, and you have that thin skin and that giant ego, you do want to shut it down. Now, one of the things I want to talk about, product conclude a little bit. Uh, Basecamp uh, played out virtually. The company was already 100% remote even before the pandemic. They had a little bit of in-person stuff. Does that change when there's in-person stuff? Do you think it would have gone down differently if it was a an in-person situation? It's hard because it. It depends on the company culture. Like there are some companies where they've been able to build tight connections remotely because they've really been intentional about it. I do think that being remote, if you haven't done it right, can allow for more misunderstandings. It can allow for less connection. And there's a professor at Stanford, Leanne Williams, who's an expert on psychiatry. And, you know, she said like the the stress from the pandemic has really damaged our brains in a way that 
makes it hard for us to have good executive functioning skills. Mm -hmm. And our brain is a muscle that needs to rest and it needs to recover. And one of the things that helps it recover is interpersonal connections. And so when you're working remotely and you haven't had a lot of intentional structure around these connections that are like less transactional and more social, and you're in a pandemic, so you don't get that social connection Mm -hmm. outside of work, I think it does make things harder. One of the things that we saw in our research is like 85% of people are feeling more anxiety since COVID. And that's like across the board, you know, from leadership level down to most junior worker level. Mm -hmm. As you mentioned earlier, your advocacy group project did recent study of tech workers and found that more than one in four respondents had experienced more harassment based on gender, race, ethnicity while working remotely. Why is that? It's a combination of things. It's, you know, people are feeling anxiety. They feel a lot of stress. There's increased work expectations. They feel like they have more pressure to work longer hours. They're not getting downtime and they have no separation between work and home life. So there's a lot of stress and pressure. And I think that's causing people to be more um, hostile and to harass more. I also think that there's more one-on-one interaction that is hidden, Mm -hmm. right? So if you're in an office in person, you can't just scream at somebody because other people will hear you. And, you know, somebody will come in and say, hey, that's really not appropriate. But if you're on a phone or if you're in a Zoom, you can scream all you want because nobody else is there. And that's allowed for more of this hostility and this abuse. We'll be back in a minute. If you like this interview and want to hear others, follow us on your favorite podcast app. You'll be able to catch up on Sway episodes you may have missed, like my conversation with current Reddit CEO, Steve Huffman, and you'll get new ones delivered directly to you. More with Ellen Pau after the break. Drexel University infuses academics with the power of real experience. Through Drexel's renowned cooperative education program, students are empowered to test drive future careers and discover the perfect profession before graduation. By embracing experiential education, this Philadelphia institution has created a practical yet transformative academic model that inspires intellectual exploration and yields undeniable results. More at drexel.edu. I use the New York Times Games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I think I know this connection. Look, Bath is a city in England, Sandwich is a city in England, Reading is a city in England, and I'm going to guess Derby is a city in England. I started Wordle 194 days ago, and I haven't missed a day. The New York Times Games app has all the games right there. I absolutely love Spelling Bee. I always have to get genius. I've seen you yell at it and say, that (laughs) should be a word. Totally should be a word. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. At this point, I'm probably more consistent with doing the crossword than brushing my teeth. When I can finish a hard puzzle without pins, I feel like the smartest person in the world. When I have to look up a clue to help me, I'm learning something new. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash games app. 
After you left Kleiner Perkins, you became the first female CEO of Reddit in 2014, and you quickly focused on content moderation. Um, you added a policy banning revenge form and non-consensual nude photos. You banned five subreddits for violating Reddit's rules around harassment, which really ticked off some users who cried about their free speech being violated. Can you talk about the backlash you received at the time and how it relates to current discussions about content moderation? I often find, Ellen, you're often right and early and then pay the price for it and then don't get the credit when it starts to change. Oh, you're the only person who believes that, I think. <laughs> um, okay, you're just a pain in the ass, Ellen. Yeah, Go ahead. I think that. Um, it was such a weird time. It was so intense because it, this was the same time the trial was happening. So we got rid of these five subreddits and, you know, people were so mad. And then also it was like a way to interact on the site. Like if you could say mean things about me, if you could put together um, like a really good pornographic Photoshop of me, like you would get voted to the front page. They had, you know, all sorts of like really racist memes. They had sexist memes. They had racist sexist memes, like it, all of it. And it was constant. It was all over the site. Um, and I was dumb. Like I said, no, we're not going to take it down. Like I don't want to be the person who was weak and, you know, took it all down. But that just meant there was more and more of it. And I, mm -hmm. you know, it got to a point where it was just kind of completely out of control and was like ruining the site for everyone, except for a few people who are you know, having some fun. So how do you view your actions to ban subreddits now when watching that happen? Because it did get out of control and it took over and it sort of allowed them to hide behind a free speech uh, shield, I guess. But it settled down. Like they got sick of it. Like there's only so much you can do if people aren't responding. So it, I think it's unpleasant and it's painful. And, you know, I had 24 by 7 security and I, you know, my family was threatened and, you know, some of the employees got doxxed. And it, so it's hard. It's not nothing. But you can solve the problem. Otherwise, mm -hmm. you're just constantly dealing with it. People are constantly testing that border to see where can I go? And if this is allowed, then how much worse can I do? And that just doesn't end. And we saw that with Trump on Twitter, right? When you look at that, again, early pioneer in this. And I always joke about, uh, you know, the planes are covered with the bodies of pioneers. You were, when this happened, people really reacted badly to you doing this. How do you look at that going backwards? Because now that's what's been done on Reddit. I would disagree with that. That's what okay. they say has been done. But if you look at the site, it's a mess. It is a total mess. It's still a mess. But it is what is optically the right thing to say. Right. Mm -hmm. So now everybody's saying like, okay, we need to take a stand against it. But, you know, if you look at Facebook, they haven't really done a great job. Twitter, I really feel like they're trying, but it's hard because they let it go for so long. I think, you know, YouTube is still pretty much a mess. Like they're saying no harassment, whether they do a good job of dealing with it and whether they deal with it in a timely manner and actually prevent it is a different issue. Right. So it's window dressing is what you're saying. Because you called last summer, you called that Reddit's current uh, CEO, Steve Huffman, saying that the platform, quote, nurtures and monetizes white supremacy and hate all day long. You also pointed out that he hadn't banned the subreddit, the Donald, which they did eventually uh, at the start of the year. When it was dead, when they had already moved off, right? So it was more lipstick. Too little, too late, essentially. Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook all took some steps to ban Donald Trump. As you said, I think Twitter was more aggressive. YouTube and Facebook, I would say, do not get even a, a participation trophy here. Do you see it as a sign of change when it comes to moderation, or is it just window dressing, as you just essentially said? I think it's mostly window dressing. You know, Jack Dorsey had this whole public square. I'm like, people aren't stabbing you in the public square. Like, they're not throwing feces at your face in the public square. It's a civilized environment, and that is not what's happening on social media. So there's, you know, and, and nobody can hear each other's ideas through all the yelling and screaming. Mm -hmm. And so you think that 
has anything changed from your perspective? Or you just think that it's just, that is, is it too far gone or they don't want to do anything about it or it's too hard or which, which of the many things? It's not that hard. I think that's a big red herring, right? Like we, we got rid of all of that. We had under a hundred employees. We had maybe five people working on it. Like it, it was not that hard. And we were still, you know, one of the bigger sites and with more active users. So it's not that hard if you're okay being wrong some of the time Mm -hmm. and fixing it later. So what about the accusations that you were against free speech? How do you answer that? Yeah, it, it was very frustrating because it's never been about free speech. Like these sites have always taken down spam. They've always taken down terrorism, you know, and, and also like it's not an honest argument, right? Mm-hmm. Like a lot of it is just like, oh, this is a thing, a rallying cry. and I can get a bunch of people to like support me and, and make a big fuss. So Facebook's ban, for example, was temporary on former President Trump. Do you think Facebook will permanently ban Trump? I think it depends on how powerful Trump is. I think it only depends on if he has enough of a user base, it's going to drive traffic and dollars, then it's going to be a harder decision for them. Mm -hmm. So it's not based on the right thing or breaking of rules? No, it's optics. It's going to be, well, are people going to be really pissed off at us, but we'll make a ton of money? Or, you know, are people not going to be that pissed off? We're not going to make that much money, but they don't care anyway. So we'll just put them back on because maybe he'll grow. Maybe we can use our engine to make him back into that huge force that brought, drove so much traffic. I don't think it's a values-based decision for them. What about at Twitter? They have assured me they will, he will never get back on there. Oh, good for them. I think they, you know, I, I've been really impressed by Jack bringing on board Dantley Davis and Nick Caldwell and other folks who I think were not like in 100% in agreement of the things that Twitter has done. You know, I I don't know that it's actually them that are making the changes, but I have a suspicion that it is. And and I think that's going to make a difference. What if he becomes Republican presidential nominee in 2024? Should he still be banned? It depends on what you want. Do you want to be the place where people throw shit at each other? Or do you want to be the place where people have real conversations and you have rules and people follow the rules so that you can actually um, come to agreement or learn something or, you know, have... uh, you know, insightful tweets. I hope that they want the latter, but, you know, I don't think Facebook cares. I think Facebook wants to drive traffic. I understand the point, like, oh, you need to give this leader a a voice. He has so many other outlets. Mm -hmm. I think that the standards should be held even more for people who are so public and are so visible. Yeah, they're malevolent. They're malevolent. And also people follow them. Like, hey, this guy has you know, however many million followers and look at what he does. I'm going to do the same thing so I can get that many followers, right? Like this is my example and role model of success. Well, that's why you're seeing all these mini Trumps, whether it's Marjorie Taylor Greene talking about the Holocaust or or any of them. But so a bigger discussion is how to regulate social media platforms and hold them accountable to damaging content on their sites. There's Section 230. There's all kinds of protections for these companies. What do you think should be done? Where do you see an answer? I am not a big fan of regulation in this area. I don't think people will get it right. Mm-hmm. But when you get to the point where, you know, you're having, you know, people get killed, then yeah, I think the government does need to step in because it's clear that the platforms are doing a bad job. Mm-hmm. So who, what, what is the legislation? If you could wave your wand and say one piece of legislation, what would it be? Regulation, legislation, anything? I think people have to, like, you have to protect your users from harm. Right. Like you can't you you need to prevent harassment to so liability of some sort. Yeah. Some like you can't be protected if you should have known and you 
and you didn't do anything about it. And maybe that will just make people default to, okay, I'm going to take it down until somebody can review it. And when I see that it's wrong, I'll put it back up again. So I'm going to ask you in your opinion, what are the best and worst companies right now when it comes to content moderation? Uh, I'm going to go through just a few. All right. One is bad and five is good. Reddit. Say two. Two, because? I think they talk a good game, but they're not actually putting the work into it. And that makes it worse. And they have some of the worst users on the internet. Twitter? I'd say three and a half. Like, they started from a really bad place, but they're making some progress. And I think they're really being thoughtful about it and they're willing to experiment. And I think the most important thing is that they're willing to take the heat for failing, which gives them the, the ability to actually try hard, risky new things, which are going to be the things that solve problems, not incremental changes. I, I will give my score to them. I'm giving them four. Oh, good for you. I'm going to give Reddit a three. Okay. YouTube. Oh, God. Like... It's always, I'm so nervous whenever I see kids on YouTube, like using it. I'm just like, oh. So that would be, that would be a one, I think. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would give them a two. I don't think they're worse than Reddit. Okay. All right, Facebook. I, I kind of want to give them a one because I think they have bad intention. I think YouTube, like, I don't think Susan is happy that there's crap on YouTube. I don't think Mark cares. I don't think Cheryl cares. I don't think any of the board members care. Like they know and they're just like, how long do you think it's going to take for this to blow over? Yeah. When is Kara going to shut up? Uh, I give them a zero. I give them a negative number. I think they're doing it on purpose at this point. They know about it. I can't tell you how many discussions I've had with them over 10 years. And now they're taking it to Instagram. They've taken it to WhatsApp and like the kids are, yeah, it's going to have bad impact on the kids. Okay. You're giving them one. I'm giving them a zero. TikTok. I, I just don't know. Like, I don't want to go on it because I'm really worried that it's going to get really bad. Um, so I guess I would be neutral than three. Yeah. Okay. I think that we don't know a lot about TikTok yet. All right. A lot of these problems we're seeing in tech, content moderation, boys clubs, workplace culture could be moderated if there was more action from those who control the purse and, and the cap tables. You were a VC. You still do investments, correct? I do. Yes. Angel investments very early. Yeah. So what responsibility do venture capitalists and investors have when it comes to exercising their board seat powers and weighing in on these issues? I think they have so much responsibility, but none of them is willing to use it, right? Like I'm stunned. I I mean, I've heard from a couple of VC friends that like the boards are most nervous that a company is going to get hit with a harassment claim that makes them look bad. And that they're going to have to answer to their friends and family, like, how did you let this happen? And that's the biggest concern. They don't care so much about, like, pay parity or diversity of the teams or any of that. They just want to make sure that um, there's no big harassment charge that's embarrassing. Yeah. Yeah. They're real profiles and courage, I've found over the years. Yeah. I don't have that much hope for them. I don't see that changing. I I don't. Yeah. It's not really in the interest of VCs to step in. I think they just don't. It's not in their interest to do anything or have an opinion about anything. And and the most successful are some of the most malevolent. I think the incentive is really to help jack up values for the next round of funding any way they can to invest until the startup is big enough to squeeze out its competitors. Stanford professor Steve Blank said, the first time you see a venture capitalist prosecuted for failing to uphold their duty as a board member, you're going to see Silicon Valley transform overnight. All it takes is one VC doing the perp walk and everyone gets the message. You're responsible. You have a legal duty. If uh, if you do things that are bad for society, you'll be called to account. Do you agree with him? Oh, I think so. Right. I just don't think it's going to happen. Right. But it would be fascinating. Nobody would want a board seat. And right now that's the currency, right? Like I'm on this board. I have credit for this company being successful, but nobody's going to want that if they can't escape liability. But you don't think it's going to happen? Perp walks for anybody? 
No, I like they've protected themselves very well. And also it goes back, it's a boys club. And if I'm an entrepreneur and I want to be invested in again, I can't send my board member to jail. Right? This is how like the harassment was so rampant from VCs hitting on female entrepreneurs. And nobody said anything for a very, very long time because, I mean, if you want to be in a startup, if you want to be in tech, this is the system. These are the people who have all the power and they, you know, and they're very willing to wield it and to crush people for no reason. Yeah, I think not saying anything is what a lot of very good people do. They say nothing and go along. When you think about the stuff you've done, do you find something you regret doing, having done? I mean, there are times where I wish, like, I had had more room at Reddit to do more, right? So maybe I should have fired people faster because it was this big culture of inertia and I thought that I could push people through it. And actually it's quite hard. Um, like you you need to just revamp the team, and but that didn't feel good. Um, and I thought, I, you know, I thought they would change. I think, you know, if I could have stayed longer or, or worked faster to get rid of that content faster, because, you know, we, we got rid of revenge porn and unauthorized nude photos, stolen photos, and, you know, all the platforms followed us, right? Like if I could have done more of that, just cleaned up more of the internet, that would have felt better. It's a big internet, Alan. I know. Sway is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Naeem Araza, Blakeney Schick, Hiba El-Armani, Matt Kwong, and Daphne Chen. Edited by Naeem Araza and Paula Schumann. With original music by Isaac Jones, mixing by Eric Gomez, and fact-checking by Ben Phelan and Kate Sinclair. Special thanks to Shannon Busta, Kristen Lin, and Lyriel Higa. If you're in a podcast app already, you know how to get your podcasts, so follow this one. If you're listening on the Times website, and want to get each new episode of Sway delivered to you with a mute button for your manager, download any podcast app, then search for Sway and follow the show. We release every Monday and Thursday. Thanks for listening. 